Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Blister Podcast on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. Our guest today is Nick Russell, who started snowboarding in the halfpipe, then fell in love with riding POW, and then developed a passion for splitboarding and splitboard mountaineering, which you can see him doing in his appearances in several episodes of Cody Townsend's The 50 Project. So in this conversation, Nick and I talk about The 50 Project. We talk about Nick's background and how he came to be a splitboarder sponsored by Red Bull and how his recent signing with Wonder Alpine came about. And one thing I should say, Nick and I talk a good bit about Cody's mm, questionable behavior while the two of them were stuck in a tent. And I asked Cody about this, of course. And so in the outro to this episode, I'm going to share a little bit of Cody's, not defense, but just where his headspace was at the time. So anyway, um, catch that at the end. Now, before we get started, I want to remind you that our annual Blister Summit will be kicking off next month on February 20th, right here in Mount Crested Butte, Colorado, and we would love to have you there. You can find all the up-to-date details about the summit in the show notes of this episode or on the navigation bar of our website, where it says Blister Summit. And you can also check out our guide to the Gunnison Valley, which includes very helpful travel information and the latest flight information, etc. So check those things out and then come see us and hang out with us and ski with us and all those good things. And now let's go ahead and get to my conversation with Nick Russell. Here we go. Well, Nick Russell, how are you today and where are you today? I am doing well. Thank you. Happy to be here. Currently in interior British Columbia in the middle of a storm right now. It's a nice heavy pulse coming through. <laughs> smart man. This is how I know you're a smart yeah. man. We were actually going to record this a few days ago and you were heading out somewhere. Are you allowed to, I'm personally just curious, where were you running off to and sort of coming back in from? I was in the Eastern Sierra. I recently got a small piece of land out there and have a small little cabin out there in the high Sierra at about uh, 10,000 feet. And so no service, pretty off grid, no water, no power, no anything. And so, uh, yeah, it's just really nice to unplug every once in a while. And especially when you can be in some mountains like the Eastern Sierra. Wow. And so how's the riding around there? The riding at the moment is, uh, you know, it's subpar um, riding conditions. Unfortunately, you know, we had a really big wind event come through after all that snow that we got. And then, you know, pretty dry precip, you know, went from record snowfall December to record minimal precip January. And unfortunately, that seems to be the trend, you know, these extreme weather climate shifts here going on. Um, so yeah, it's a uh, more exploratory riding at the moment and just trying to have some 
some nice days out under the sun and you know it makes it nice to get into the alpine when you're not really worried about any avalanche conditions but very cool well i've been looking forward to this conversation i think i'm trying to remember when you sort of first came on my radar and that's been a while but you've been on the radar of a lot of us sort of recently because for some reason you keep I guess volunteering to head out with Cody Townsend on this whole 50 project business. And I often watch the episodes you're in and think, why does Nick keep agreeing to come out? Like, did Cody save his life at some point? Do you owe him a big favor? So maybe you can help clarify (laughs) some of this for us. Well, you know, everyone wants to go ski and ride powder that's easy right but for the lines that you know require some more work maybe conditions are going to be variable to say the least there's not as many people to go out on those types of endeavors right and you know cody and i have been friends for a couple of years now and, and sort of when he started embarking on this journey um you know, I just reached out to him I'm like, Hey man, whenever you got a peak, you know, especially in the Sierra, I'm like, let me know. I'm, I'm always down for an adventure. And, you know, the majority of those lines in there, I've never done either. And so I love going new places. That's probably one of my favorite things about snowboarding, like exploratory snowboarding, splitboarding is going somewhere completely new. You know, even if it's in your home mountain range, you're, you're just kind of slowly piecing it together right and so having someone that's gonna put in the legwork to to make those sorts of trips happen and all you got to do is show up yeah i'll go you know for most of them although now i'm i may be starting to ask a few more questions uh before the peak or maybe maybe google it or maybe even look in the book of of what the actual line is because a couple of them you know in montana i uh i had never heard of mount stimson before and i was in jackson hole at the time it was a all-time session high pressure window going on right there in the tetons and uh cody called me and he's like hey this peak in montana's coming in would you want to come out and come out tomorrow you know and i'm like yeah for sure like what's the peak called it's like stimson and i'm like okay cool and i was on the skin track when i got the call and you know i was walking and I remember saying to one of my buddies, like, hey, man, have you ever heard of Mount Stimson? He's like, oh, yeah, that's a big one. Like, what are you going to do about the river crossing? And I'm like, I I don't know, what river? And so it was when I was driving to Montana from Wyoming that, you know, I I started Googling the peak, Mount Stimson. And, you know, sure enough, I see the line, the photo of the line. Like, oh, that's a really big, proud face, you know, start getting the kind of classic nerves before a big line. And, you know, that I, I really enjoy that aspect of it of of, uh the mental preparation going into it to something big but you know the the questions surrounding the approach um always seem to elude my my thoughts going into something like that right it's like okay yeah no matter what if it's a if it's a big remote peak it's going to be hard work to get out there right and so you just got to put your head down and and do what you got to do for those those types of missions until you get to the base of the line and you know then once you're on the face itself on the peak and you're climbing you know that that's the shit we love you know uh, starting in the dark and 
you know, you get to the base, you put your crampons on, you start climbing, you got your axe out and, you know, the sun's coming up over the ridge and, you know, you're about to top out on this, on this ridge top and see this whole other side of the range that you, that you didn't even know existed. Right. You're looking into Canada on that peak. And, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's always an honor when, when I get the call from Cody and, you know, I, I think maybe in the past I've been a little bit of a yes man and, uh, you know, you learn from, from, uh, from past experiences and, um, maybe that's helped me ask a few more questions before completely blindly agreeing into something. After watching, I think it's the latest release summit fever. My biggest thought for you, well, one is I worry about your footwear choices sometimes, but even bigger, I was like, we just need to make sure Nick has reading material like has is armed with some reading material because that that part actually of summit fever when you're like here's my game i'm staring at the tent wall i'm like man this dude needs a book real bad you know what was the most messed up thing about that is cody had a kindle loaded with books and he would not read to me i asked him if he would read to me and and he didn't what yeah I'll hold that over him. You should. That's <laughs> terrible behavior. Terrible, terrible, <laughs> terrible waiting, waiting out behavior. What was his reasoning for not reading? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, who wants to read to someone? I will. I had a book earlier on the trip and uh, we had a cache, a high mountain cache. And we were trying to go as light as possible when we rode down to gotcha, the beach. Yeah. And so I ditched that. And in my kind of optimistic viewpoint in my head, I was like, oh, yeah, we're going to ride down to the ocean. We're going to get right to the beach. Paul's going to be there with his plane and pick us up. And, you know, that was also part of my reasoning of not bringing shoes down to the beach. Um, you know, just thinking in a perfect world, literally, just, oh, yeah, we'll ride off the summit and we'll get to the beach plane's going to be there waiting for us, but it does not always work out that way. Not quite. I, w I was just talking to Cody earlier today and, um, I said that you and I are going to be talking and, um, he said, well, be sure to bring up hashtag nightmares with Nick. <laughs> yeah. So that was spawned, I think on our Mount Stimson trip. And it was when we were departing after we had rode the line and we were walking back out to our car and uh you know we we walked in there so we knew how bad it was going to be on the way out but we decided to take a what we thought was a shortcut at the time through this kind of clear-cut area that the beta we had received you know um was maybe two years prior so that clear cut had then turned into a industrial sized baby Christmas tree farm. So walking through that area, uh, you know, was challenging to say the least. And so, yeah, we came up with that. We coined that, that term, that hashtag, whatever. And, uh, it's kind of this awakening, right? I'm like, Hey man, how come every mission we've been on together has been a fucking nightmare? And that's where that came from. <laughs> Nightmares with Nick. But you got to laugh about it, right? Yeah, you got to laugh about it. He's like, if you can't, if you can't laugh about it, then uh, you probably shouldn't be out there. Probably about right. Yeah. We're actually going to talk about a couple of your sponsors. You are a Red Bull athlete. 
and you are a split border. This is not the most common sort of combination of things. And I was just curious to learn more about sort of, well, that, that fact, those two facts, I guess. Totally. Yeah. It's, it's not, you know, what you would think of when you think of Red Bull forever for me, when I thought of Red Bull, I would think of base jumping and, you know, these really wild extreme sports. You think of Travis Rice, right? You think of the guy that literally jumps from space. It wasn't until I was on a trip to Denali a couple of years ago and a friend, Ian Walsh, big wave surfer was with us, who's been on Red Bull forever. And, you know, you're on an expedition, you get to talk in. And I remember one day we just kind of started having this conversation and I was like, hey, what's it like riding for Red Bull? You know, and he had, he's been on on the brand for 15 years and, you know, he had nothing but great things to say. And so that kind of got my mind spinning about what it could be like. Um, had talked to a couple other friends that were on the team and kind of just, you know, kind of realized that they don't have anyone in this avenue of snowboarding that I partake in. You know, there's, there's no one on the team that's primarily human powered access free riding. And, um, you know, kind of through those conversations with Ian, uh, other friends, Michelle Parker had a good conversation with Travis Rice about it. Um, it, you know, surprisingly was a was a pretty good fit when I started getting into conversations with with the brand there. And um, it actually now makes a lot of sense for me. You know, it's this whole other aspect that they haven't tapped into yet. And to be in a position where, you know, I can showcase this style of riding that we do to the greater Red Bull audience is a really cool opportunity. And it's an honor to be able to do that. You know, they have some of the best athletes in the world and to be included in that is, uh, is, you know, I'm extremely humbled by the, the fact that, that I get to ride for them. And, you know, since I joined about a year and a half ago, I, I got nothing but amazing things to say. They're an incredible brand to work with. They're super supportive in terms of, you know, helping your, these like dream projects come to life. Um, they're supportive in your, in your off season and your physical therapy, rehab, strengthening training programs. And, uh, yeah, I, I'm super psyched to be involved with them and, and really looking forward to seeing what we can do together in the future. How old were you when you first started getting on a snowboard? I was probably around eight or nine years old, you know, started on skis made that transition and and never really i i had never put on ski boots since then but uh yeah it was a pretty early adoption pretty early obsession do you remember what it was either that first got you to jump over and try a snowboard and or when you did what was the moment like where you're like oh yeah i'm not going back to the two stick thing it was the kind of natural evolution where you've do what your older brother does. And that's what my brother was doing. And then quickly connected with friends my age that were skateboarders, snowboarding. And it quickly became this 
lifestyle, for lack of a better word, that there weren't many of us that were doing it, you know, where I grew up, at least. So the couple of friends that I did have that snowboarded, like we had this special bond, right? That we were snowboarders and we were, you know, I wouldn't say that I, I was an outcast by any means, but it was this cool, unique thing that, that I knew deep down that it was something different than what was the norm at the time. And, uh, you know, you know, maybe I was just at that age where you start to latch on to things a little bit more and then you start to, you know, get a little bit better. And I could just see that progression happening really quickly with snowboarding for me. Where did you grow up? I grew up in Connecticut, Southwest Connecticut and, uh, first started riding at a small town hill called Woodbury. They had one little rope tow, one one slow chairlift. And then our family was kind of weekend warrior style, where we'd go up to southern Vermont on the weekends. And um, started out at Queechy, Queechy, Vermont, which is kind of near Killington. And then moved to Bromley, kind of became the go-to place. And, you know, both of those places were super bomb and pop ran style resorts very quiet and and not so much the the mega ski resort that you see today you know i don't know what it would if i was that young going into it now i I would probably have a different perception of it um you know just seeing these mcmansion resorts popping up and whatnot and and more luxury style and back then it wasn't it's like luxury right it was you know more vermont maple syrup carhartt wearing type people and um, I just was was drawn to it right away. And I always like to say I lost the keys to the getaway car well before I had a driver's license. And you know there there was never any plan B. There was no backup, and it was snowboarding, you know, one way or another. From a very early age, I mean, like from this, are we talking like in the nine, ten, eleven year old range? That early, or oh yeah, oh yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah. He says with conviction. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. When did you make your way out west? Right after high school. Um, so through high school, I I competed uh, primarily half-pipe competitions and kind of phased out of that by the end of my high school days. Um, you know, I just didn't connect with it as well as a lot of my friends did. Um, a lot of friends started doing really well at these competitions and, you know, I was sort of getting left behind, uh, and just didn't really feel that attracted to the, the whole competition side, the whole subjectiveness of it all. And so, you know, I, I was drifting away and then right after high school, I moved to Salt Lake city and that was the light bulb moment. You know, going to Brighton, hiking up off of the Pioneer chairlift and riding powder, untouched powder for the first time, feeling weightless. Put your hand in the snow, right? It's full light bulb. And that was it for me. It was riding the mountain as a whole. You know, you're, you're not just going straight to the park every run because that was my, my upbringing. You're riding the park all day, every day. You know, back east, it wasn't. We, we would go and ride the mountain and go for your ride, go in the trees, stuff like that. But, um, 
it's, it's nothing like once you get west of the Mississippi, you know, it's a whole other world. And you're kind of starting from, from ground zero there of, of what you thought snowboarding was. It was this whole completely new universe. And so that was really exciting there for a long time. And it still is really exciting. There's, you know, still this whole other universe. I'm in Canada right now and I haven't spent much time in these mountains. And I'm like, wow. Okay. <laughs> what year is that when you are riding around Brighton? I moved to Utah in 2006. Okay. Yeah. So, um, you know, not that, that long ago for, for some people, <laughs> maybe for, for the kids. In geologic <laughs> yeah, for, time, it's true. This is a blink of the eye. Yeah, for sure. But I yeah. guess these things are relative. So I'd love to ask you about another really significant moment in your life. And that has to do with a really scary health issue you had. Yeah, for sure. Uh, so 2015, January 2015, I was getting ready for the winter. Um, at this point, it had, I'd been kind of living on the road for about three years, and I was working on a film with two friends, Wyatt and Corey Stastinos, and we were shooting it in 16 millimeter in Super 8. It's called Free. And, you know, essentially the plan each year was we meet up, we go to the grocery store, we go to Costco, we load up with a whole bunch of food, we pack into Wyatt's truck, and we live out of the truck for the whole year. And we go where the snow is good and where we can park the truck, set up tents and live at trailheads and, you know, just free living. And while gearing up for this third year, um, you know, kind of started coming down with with flu flu like symptoms. Went to the doctor; they thought it was pneumonia, and so they gave me some antibiotics. And another week or so went by. We were up in Jackson Hole at this point, and it started getting really difficult to breathe, and you know, kind of the worst excruciating illness I'd ever experienced. So finally ended up going back to the hospital at this point to get a chest x-ray. And once they did the chest x-ray and CT scan, they found this grapefruit size abscess pushing in my liver. And so they immediately life lighted me to Salt Lake City. And everything's kind of moved really, really quickly at this time. Um, I was in the hospital and I was very drug induced. I didn't really realize what was going on. My father had flew out from the East and uh, he was there with me. And, you know, essentially they were trying to figure out what caused this illness, what was the root of it. And the doctors still to this day have never figured it out of why I got sick. And so it was a streptococcus infection, it was called. Uh, I couldn't even tell you what it is. But I just remember, you know, various specialists coming in every other day. And uh, at one point while I was in the hospital, I was kind of starting to come to, you know, I, this was maybe like week two of the trip, week, or not trip, um, just stint in the hospital, like week three maybe. And I remember them saying like, 
you know, I don't think you realize how, how close you came to, to not pulling through this. And it was a, a blur during those, those weeks. I was in the hospital for a month, all said and done. And once I kind of slowly started to recover, regain some red blood cell counts, they, they sent me back to my parents' house to go recover. And they told me that I wouldn't be feeling back to normal for at least another year. And this is, you know, peak winter time now. And I can't snowboard. I'm mentally completely fine. But my body does not have the immune system or strength to be able to do that. My physical therapy at the time was walking up and down the stairs. You know, if I could walk up and down the stairs five times in a day, that was a productive day. I'd, lo- I'd lost about 30 pounds and, you know, I don't weigh that much as is. So I was just skin and bones. And having something like snowboarding to keep in my mind throughout this recovery process was 110% the, the sole reason that I was able to recover the way that I did. And, you know, come April, I'm feeling good enough and I, and I go back out West and I was really fired up to go snowboarding because I'd missed, you know, the whole season. But at that time the resorts were starting to close down. So they're, wasn't that many places to go riding. And so where do you go riding when the resorts are closed in the springtime, you go to the volcanoes and I'd never been on a volcano before. And I never really climbed a big mountain. I'd been splitboarding, you know, for, for, you know, maybe the previous four years or so, but, but not climbing big peaks. And so I remember going and buying my first pair of crampons and buying an ice axe and me and my buddy Murph, we just went on a little mini Cascades tour and we rode a dozen volcanoes that spring. And, you know, once again, it's, it goes back to kind of the trips with Cody there. You know, it's hard work climbing a big mountain, especially springtime. It's hot. You know, you're, you're boot packing for hours on end. And it didn't matter at that point. I, I got to go snowboarding. I was supposed to be dead you know, three months before that. But the fact that I was slowly able to regain my strength literally with every step and you're getting stronger throughout this whole process, you know, that was, that was incredible. And so that experience as shitty at the time as it was, that sparked a fire deep, deep within for sure. And I would say, you know, that kind of set off, um, you know, what would be this, this path over the next couple of years of just being fired up to, to get out there and, and to put in the hard work when you have to like, and do the things that maybe not, not too many other people are willing to do. And, um, you know, one of those, one of those life-changing experiences, you know, that just, you, you know, help you appreciate life as for what it is. And when we're healthy, we got to move, we got to be outside, we got to be doing something. And, uh, yeah, it, it, it was a, it was definitely the spark to the path that I'm on right now. It sort of sounds like you had this very like linear recovery. Like you went from barely being able to move 
to you started getting a bit stronger and now you're walking up volcanoes, did it actually tend to be like once you got past a point of excruciating pain and debilitating weakness, then you were just kind of on this, you know, up into the right trajectory or were there setbacks or did it get rocky along the way? There's always setbacks. It always gets rocky, right? You're always going to encounter these speed bumps and detours. And after being at the lowest of lows, you know, when you can, when you, people always like to say it, it could always be worse. You know, that was the worst. And, you know, when, when you experience that, all these other hurdles and hiccups don't, don't seem as significant. Right. And so, you know, you need, you run out of money and you need to, you need to get a job for a couple of months so you can go shred or go on that next trip. You know, it's like, okay, you do what you got to do when you got to do it. And that was something that I've always remembered, you know, when, when you reach this detour and you, and you got a zig, but you want a zag, you know, sometimes you got to do it. From a physical point of view, though, you have, again, you kind of had a pretty quick and impressive recovery from a physical point of view. Yes. This has not been a recurring thing or, uh, you know, or uh, that's not a statement. That's a question. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. I was thinking more metaphorically there. Um, no, no physical issues since then. Uh, for a couple of years there at the beginning of the season, I would get super nervous that something was going to come back and I've gotten a handful of checkups. You know, I, it's been a while now since I've gotten any blood work or anything like that. But, you know, for those first two years, I was going to get blood work and, you know, just making sure everything was kosher. And thankfully, you know, as, as sudden as the illness came on, it, it disappeared just as quickly. And, you know, take that for what it's worth, right? Like the the rough seas shall pass. Interesting. Weirdly, I kind of have my own somewhat analogous insane story like that. And um, I haven't exactly conducted a poll of like pretty strong young people who've had some sort of insane kind of event or episode. I do have to wonder a little bit if very sort of out of left field and very difficult and let's say near death experiences <laughs> at a young age, maybe that just does sort of naturally have a way to kind of focus some intentionality or bring some intentionality to a life, right? Like it can be a bit of a gift. That seems a little much, but still may be true. But one does get a sense of like, yeah, we're really not promised tomorrow. So let's maybe try to make a good use of this time. Totally. For sure. Yeah. It just felt like a testament to the fragility of life. And, you know, you can either, either live in fear and not leave your house, or you can go outside and, and soak up the sun rays and, you know, embrace the wind. And so I, I chose the latter and, it's uh, it's been working out, you know, with with all all darkness comes light one way or another. So I love that story, like 
not parts of it. I hate some of the parts of that. That sounds terrible. And I'm sorry you went through that. But it makes a lot of sense about how splitboarding itself came on in a strong way, right? You're like, well, the resorts were closed and I was not about to not snowboard at this time. But just talk a little bit about gravitating then or continuing to gravitate more toward backcountry riding and sort of that becoming a bigger part of just what you were into and were pursuing? Yeah. Well, so at this point, by 2015, I had already, you know, I had maybe been primarily in the backcountry for five years or so by this point. And, you know, when you're making that transition from trying to be a competition rider or skier if you're not competing you film video parts and to film you would need a snowmobile or a helicopter if you want a free ride right and that was kind of this like unwritten rule of it all and then deeper came out jeremy's first movie so that was 2009 or 10 i believe and i saw that and at this point, I had already been hiking around Grizzly Gulch in Utah, uh, Brighton Side Country, whatnot. The movie came out. Whoa, splitboards. That's cool. It's free. And so splitboarding unintentionally happened out of necessity where I didn't have money for a snowmobile. I didn't have money to find helicopters. But I can invest in all of this gear and I can go snowboarding for free. I might not be getting as many runs in, but I'm having this whole experience that's lasting all day out in the mountains. And it's on my own terms. And it's not costing me anything, right? And so when we were making free, you know, we, we had some pretty crappy snowmobiles that were primarily used to we would double out to these zones and then we would park the sled and then we'd hike splitboard from there and so that was kind of really how how i got introduced into it and once i moved to tahoe kind of right before i got sick and then right after i recovered you know a lot of the area in tahoe is wilderness where you're not allowed to snowmobile in in these places and so the only way to access them is by walking by human power and so i didn't need a snowmobile you know i i could do what i wanted to do without this thing and after a while or i'd say actually pretty quickly you know you kind of begin to fall in love with the whole process of the whole thing you know you enjoy the night before packing your backpack, you're looking at a map, you're checking the weather. And the next morning you're waking up, it's dark. You got your headlamp, you're getting on the skin track and you pop out through the trees and you're seeing this day evolve, you know, at a, on a very intimate level and you're working hard, right? But you're warming up for the day. You start out slow. You're kind of, you know, greasing the cog and the wheel there. And by the time you get to the top, you feel good. 
you know, and, and so for me, I fell in love with that whole process of it all, that, that connect, connectiveness to the mountains. And, you know, next thing I realized, it's like a couple of years later, and I'm like, man, I, you know, I guess I'm the spokeboard guy. I don't know. Like, I, I, I w- it was all stemmed from trying to be frugal, right? Like, I didn't want to s- spend any unnecessary money. And so I, I wasn't buying resort season passes for a couple of years there because I was still snowboarding every single day. And every run was very memorable. You know, if it was a powder day, I, I surely wasn't crossing any tracks and maybe I'm only getting like a 10th of the amount of riding that you're getting at the ski resort on that day. But, you know, I'm not waiting in lines. I'm not crossing a track and, you know, this feels good. And then, you know, soon enough, that's, you know, just second nature. That's what you think of when you think of snowboarding, like, cool, where are we, where are we going to go? Okay. What's the best way to get there? What's, you know, what, what are the best conditions for the, for the given day? You know, where, where do you want to go? And it's all up to you. So every day we're going somewhere new, somewhere that I'd never been before. And so in the Sierra, you're kind of piecing together, you know, from Tahoe down to South Lake and you're looking at the skyline and everything starts to make sense. You start to be able to pick out the names of the peaks and, you know, you're, you're looking through these lines through the mountains and you're piecing together these bigger tours and, you know, it becomes this whole other, universe you know it, it, it starts to become so far beyond the actual writing that um has really drawn to me so jeremy jones and the movie deeper that is another sort of light bulb moment maybe we say so it had to be kind of wild then that you then end up writing for jones <laughs> that seems like a pretty nice part of the life story you know, going from that point A to sort of, you know, getting to that other point, um, that had to feel pretty cool, I imagine. For sure, to say the least. You know, so Wyatt Stasinos at the time had been riding for Jones. And so that's how I first met Jeremy, was through Wyatt. And right before I had moved to Tahoe, I had sent Jeremy an email basically just saying that, Hey, I I would love to ride your snowboards, you know? And to my surprise, he responded and I got a snowboard. And uh, once I moved to Tahoe, I moved into my friend, Danny Davis's house who lives half quarter mile down the street from Jeremy. And we started riding together. He would pick me up in the morning to go to the mountain. He would take me out snowboarding. And all of a sudden I'm, I'm chasing him around the mountains and, you know, really getting this full deep dive immersion that like, you can't even write a story that like with a happy ending like that, you know, and Jeremy has this line in one of his movies. I think it was deeper. It's like, if you do something long enough, you're going to eventually meet your heroes. And that's exactly what happened. And, you know, I attribute it all to like manifestation, right? Like not saying I necessarily have this exact plan in mind, but, you know, you, you see a film like that and it will change your life. And that's, I think, why splitboarding has had the boom 
that it has 100% from that trilogy, from those movies of, of showcasing the, the real world behind the scenes aspect to the world, you know, because a lot of these ski movies, snowboard movies, they have this Alaska footage, this insane big mountain terrain and, and they're flying around in helicopters and, and it's not fathomable as a kid, right? Like you're watching this stuff and it doesn't really make sense of, of what they're doing. The severity of it does not shine through whatsoever. Um, and so seeing these films, seeing Jeremy's films, you know, taking this, you know, very calculated approach to the mountains kind of, kind of gives the viewer a step-by-step view of, of the process. And that's what drew to me was the, humanizing aspect of it all that i kind of had this realization that if i get the gear if i get the skills if i take the avalanche courses you know if i get the strength i can go out and do this i can try you know and it doesn't it it, in the beginning it didn't matter where we were going it was in utah i remember my first time uh winter camping we just went right up and over the ridge from little cottonwood and far enough where you can't see the road, but really we're just you know right over the bend. But we posted up tents, and we might as well have been on Mars at that point, you know. So yeah, another one of those those light bulbs for sure. This is the like Nick's light bulbs conversation. I like this. I right. like this. We're we're picking them all off. We're or identifying yeah. them along the way. I'd be curious to I guess pause at this part in the conversation and ask you if you have a take on say the current state of snowboarding or at this point are you pretty homed in and focused on like what you are up to in some of your own projects or are you looking around a bit and how just your own personal opinion how would you kind of assess the state of things in the snowboard world? I certainly keep tabs on everything, um, more so through my friends that are in different avenues of snowboarding. But, you know, I, I definitely consider myself someone that tries to stay up to date with what's happening. Maybe not so much in the contest scene. Um, I do have my friends that still compete and I like to follow them, but they're few and far between. And then, you know, I have my friends that are in the maybe kind of more in the streets and the jib scene that I do like to follow along with as well. Um, and I think there's a lot of really great things going on in snowboarding right now across the board. And I think that, there's room for every different style you know there's and i appreciate every different type of snowboarding and um, everyone kind of finds their own craft and niche and what calls to them and i respect that you know you can see that shine through and people snowboarding that that's the style they gravitate towards and you know sure everyone thinks that what they're doing is is the right thing to do and, you know, I don't necessarily feel like that. I like that there's there's people, you know, going to these random cities and, and going to Jibin and these kids that are in the park 
you know, um, because for me with, with my evolution into the backcountry, it, it was a long process, right? Like I did all that and you discover that later in life, whenever you're ready and you know, the mountains will always be there and be waiting for you when you want to learn, when you want to start that whole lifelong process. And that's, what's cool about it. And so let the people stay in the park, let them do whatever they want. It'll, it'll uh, keep the backcountry maybe a little less crowded for a couple of years. <laughs> so you are here today to endorse park riding. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that, is yeah the that's main, the that is the primary takeaway from Nick Russell's message. Get into the park people. Parks are fantastic. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, people will discover the backcountry one way or another, and uh, everyone does it on their own terms. Um, I think it's really cool to embrace all, all sides of the sport. Yeah. Here, here. Let's talk about maybe the latest chapter in your life. You very recently just officially came on board with Wonder Alpine, which is a company that we definitely know very well here at Blister. We've had Charlie Dimler on podcasts and we've had him in Crested Butte in our headquarters and have had great conversations with Charlie and Matt Sturbins and you know the crew at Wonder Alpine and Checker Spot. Very curious to hear how that partnership came about. Yeah. Uh, so that all kind of happened this past fall. And it really stemmed from Pep. So Pep and I are both Patagonia ambassadors. And we were at a event together. It was actually a, a public speaking training event that Patagonia hosted for a couple of us, which was really cool because uh, we were going out on, um, you know, individual shop speaking tours that year, right before COVID. It was during the election. And Pep's release about Wonder Alpine had just come out. And I remember having a conversation with him, just kind of throwing it out there. I'm like, oh, you guys going to make split boards? And with, I, I wasn't hinting anything at the time, but I was actually thinking about it earlier today. And maybe subconsciously, both of us knew when we started having that conversation. And so he reached out last winter to me, kind of asking if I would ever entertain the idea that they were going to start doing snowboards. And at the time it was sort of still just a, a seed in the ground. And I didn't really hear anything about it. And, you know, I wasn't pursuing it. I wasn't looking to make a, a sponsor change at that time. And then, you know, in the fall, he, he reached back out. The snowboards were gaining steam. They had just hired Alex Andrews and it sort of became more of a, of a viable option, right? Or a viable thought. And so I started thinking about it more seriously and having an opportunity like that doesn't come around very often. You know, it's, you talk about these once in a lifetime opportunities, but it truly is once in a lifetime opportunity to be on the ground floor of an emerging brand that's using completely new technology to make snowboards and skis, you know, to use these materials that are non-petroleum based that have never been used in snowboards before is pretty exciting. 
So seeing that sort of limitless possibility with what that could entail was very intriguing to me. And so that's why I started to, to take it more seriously. And as the talks kind of started to evolve, you know, one thing led to another and um, ended up pulling the trigger and making the move sort of a, a blind leap of faith at that point. You know, I hadn't ridden any of the boards. There was maybe a handful of prototypes made at that time. But seeing what Pep and Matt have done with on the ski side of things, you know, that was validation enough for me. You know, it's Matt's business sense and Pep's creativity. And, you know, he's a pretty, pretty in-depth guy that you need to have a, have a conversation with to like get on, on some of those deeper levels, you know? And so seeing Pep's, Pep's side of that is the, it was, felt very natural to me. You know, it, it felt like a really good option. And, you know, once again, kind of this, you know, moving off, uh, off this intuition, you know, this intuition that we have in the mountains is you, you have that same intuition in life and, and things that feel right and things that don't. And, you know, this felt right. So decided to hop on board with these guys in uh, late fall, early, early start of the season. And we've, we've been kind of, you know, already prototyping a ton of boards and it's been really exciting to have that quick turnaround on feedback and tweaking of the boards. You know, those guys being in Salt Lake and designing them right there. Everything is done in-house there, which is really cool. You know, seeing that ability for, for innovation is, uh, is really, really cool. And for me to learn about the intricacies of, you know, building a snowboard and the development and it, it, it's pretty new to me. You know, I, I know what I like in a snowboard and I, and I know what I don't like, but I don't, I didn't before this, I didn't necessarily know what made the board ride the way it does. And so being able to, to see inside these ingredients, you know, of, uh, you know, whether it be the core or the, or the glue that we're using or the top sheet material or the base material, um, you know, all these little pieces play into the bigger picture of, of what creates the board that you're writing. So it's, it's been this awesome learning experience for me and, and getting involved with the whole crew there has been, you know, just a, a really fun and exciting experience and totally new chapter in my life. All right. I think we need to talk about what you do and don't like in a snowboard. We tend to nerd out a little bit about gear around here at Blister. And I think it's, I'm really curious to just hear your personal preferences given your very varied background, right? So we've got a guy that started as a half pipe rider, then started riding a bunch of inbounds pow around Brighton and then started split boarding and then now i don't know more frequently than maybe he should ends up with a 70 pound pack on his back you know like scraping his way down 50 degree slopes that's like i would have trouble predicting what kind of ride or performance qualities you would be looking for given that much variation in what you've done for sure you know, with 
my snowboarding that I do, I would, I, I strive for it to be a balance of happy pal and then get into the Alpine. And when you're in the Alpine, the conditions are going to be variable. And so you need this board that can perform on some firm snow, right? And in the steeps. And so where the key attributes in the steeps is is quick edge to edge hop turning capabilities. Cause you know, as we all know, you're not always charging these huge lines, right? Sometimes you're just trying to pick your way down them. And so having that solid edge control is crucial. While at the same time, you want that board to be able to ride through some 25 degree angle happy pow through the trees, right? And so this first board that we're working on is kind of that ATV all mountain free ride board. And with the field testing that I've been working on the past couple of weeks or past couple of months, this whole season, um, I've been purposely trying to take it in all conditions. You know, it's, it's pretty easy. I mean, everybody likes riding powder. Like I said before, you know, that's, that's easy. And, and it really doesn't take much to make a board ride good in powder. My personal opinion, right? Like you could ride your table through, through the right snow on the right pitch. Um, and so how can that board translate into the steeps, into the firm snow? And, you know, with that, um, you know, the side cut comes into play there. For me, I like to make these big, long, drawn-out turns when the terrain allows. But at the same time, you'd be able to navigate nimbly from edge to edge, whether it be bobbing through trees or weaving, hopping through rocks. And so that's what we're tinkering with on the board is, is, you know, how can we make this board that's going to be enjoyable for all types of snowboarders, you know, whether you're just kind of a leisure free rider or you're looking to get up, up into the Alpine. And that's the dream board for me. That's kind of the, the one-stop shop there. Um, you know, uh, stiffness in the nose is really key for a, a free ride board that I've noticed, you know, once you start getting going fast, maybe you're in the apron of a line and you've kind of made your crucial moves and all of a sudden you're opening it up, you're full spread Eagle arms wide open. And, uh, you, you know, maybe you're, you're busting across some, some slough or, or debris or whatever. You need to have that nose solid, right? You can't, it can't be flapping. Otherwise you're going to fold and you're going to take a bad fall. So that's a pretty key piece to the puzzle there. Um, and then, you know, the camber, is uh, always up for debate. People people have their own preferences, and so kind of looking for a happy medium between all that for at least this first board. Um, but yeah, it's uh, yeah, I've been on the, the current board that I'm on now for at least a month straight, and it's, you know, far exceeded my expectations for an early prototype board, and, and I'm really happy with the way it's riding right now, and uh, yeah, pretty excited about this thing pretty good pretty good i want to let you get going but before i do i'm still thinking about being stuck in that tent you know without books and now i'm curious that for you do you consider yourself more of a reader 
music listener or say movie watcher? All the above. I get, if I only had one thing, I would get bored with it. Um, so when you're stuck in the tent, it's nice to mix it up. You know, you read a couple chapters, close the book, put some music on, zone out. You know, if you have movies, that's awesome. I never do because I always, uh, I'm not very good at charging my phone out there. You know, once it dies, it's kind of dead. Um, but on that trip, I'll say, so Cody and I were sharing a tent and then Dan Korn and Bjarne were sharing a tent and Dan is a veteran mountain guide ranger. You know, he's been up on Denali, you know, dozen times and so he's used to it and so he already had a bunch of movies preloaded and you know and all the the hecticness and craziness of getting ready for a trip like that i i didn't download any movies and so those guys are in their tents snickering away watching the minions trilogy and i'm i'm sitting there twiddling my thumbs counting stitches on the tent and uh begging Cody to read a book to you. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I would say the ideal scenario in an expedition setting would be if you have all three. Um, mixed with some games, card games, dice. Big big Farkle fan. Uh, we play a lot of Farkle on trips. CeeLo is nice. Um, and uh, yeah, just figuring out ways to keep yourself busy, you know, and, and stay in a good mood. And just, you know, enjoy the time spent while you're waiting for the weather to cooperate and become a little bit more friendly. It's uh, pretty crucial. What's the best or kind of most memorable book or film you've watched recently or it's just a favorite of yours it's a go-to and feel free to provide a book and a film i'm curious cody and i talk about books and movies a lot like once a month we do this reviewing the news thing yeah. and so um we might as well drag you into this get your some some recommendations from you for sure i i will say cody is one of the most well-read people i've ever met yeah, but he's a jerk who won't read to you. That's the that's the most shocking thing I've learned in this entire conversation. I'm so mad at him right now. I think this is horrible behavior. Okay, I will I will say yeah, it is horrible. I will to give him credit though, he would at least give me the cliff notes of the book he was <laughs> reading. So I remember at the time, I think he was just reading Braiding Sweetgrass, I think that's the name of it, which yeah. Um, yeah. So, so I at least got the cliff notes of that. Um, but my personal favorites, you know, a book that I could read over and over is The Alchemist. That was a book that I read for the first time when I was sick. A friend gifted it to me. And that really struck a chord with me. You know, you can read a book like that and kind of have it go one ear at the other and, you know, maybe feel fired up and motivated for, for like a day. But a lot of that really stuck with me over all these years. And I actually have a copy with me right now and kind of revisit it from time to time. Um, and then as for movies, um, man, there was, a, there was a year I was traveling with Gray Thompson uh, the year that we, we filmed Range of Mystery and 
the only movie he had on his computer was Meru. <laughs> so we like we watched that a, a surprisingly high amount of times. Um, but you know, I it's hard to hard to say. I'm a fan. I'm an action movie guy. You know. Okay. Um, so I like I like yeah all those. I like apocalyptic movies, um, and I, I think with films, it's a little bit harder to to watch and rewatch things without getting burnt out on them. But certain books, you know, if you give them the right amount of breathing time between reads, um, The Alchemist takes the cake for me. I like yeah. it. That's a book I need to revisit. I, I think one of the things with books is like, if something, I mean, this happens with films too, but if, if you're just not ready sometimes, whether at whatever stage of life you're in, or frankly, like at a film, if, if you didn't sleep well the night before, something's distracting you, you can miss stuff and it stuff hits different and can hit a lot harder than it does maybe on a first go round. And, um, I think that The Alchemist is one that probably deserves to be revisited. It's a book that obviously so many people, you know, regard so highly. So I, that probably should go on my list to revisit. For sure. And now that I'm thinking about it uh, for films, I, I got to say Let It Ride, the Craig Kelly documentary, especially significant today, January 20th, when we're recording this. I don't know when this app comes out, but, but today is the anniversary of his passing. And I am, you know, pretty close to the mountains that that, that accident occurred in that happened on the Durant Glacier in the Selkirks. And so it's kind of just up the road from where I'm at right now. And today was full storm day, dumping all day. You couldn't go riding, um, just snowing too much. And so definitely felt a bit of the ck vibes going on today um if you haven't had the chance to watch that documentary highly recommend it basically his 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 life story and um super impactful on me even before i really got into the free ride world but now more so it's um it's a must watch for any any splitboarder skier for that matter you know just anyone that wants to set their life up for living in the mountains and, and sliding, whichever way you're, you're standing is incredibly inspiring. Let it ride. I've it's on my radar. I haven't had a chance to watch it yet, so it will go near the top of the list as well. Yeah. Put it in the queue. Yeah. Hey man, I'm going to let you get back to your evening. Um, but, uh, this has been cool to connect and I actually really love the way you tell the narrative of your story. So I think, and maybe that Patagonia speaking public speaking workshop, I think that maybe did real well. That was actually one of the other things I was going to ask you about. I forgot. What's your best tip given that I sort of end up talking a lot publicly? What, what's the one or two things that, you know, I ought to know since I didn't get a chance to, you know, take that, course for me the most important skill that i got out from that was remembering to breathe taking pauses between thoughts it's it's easy to have verbal diarrhea and then in the public speaking landscape you kind of 
lose your breath at that point. And that's when nervousness can seep through. But if you're going slow and you're breathing the whole time, it's a lot more calming and relaxing. And you have time to collect your thoughts and think about what you're going to say next. So that would be my biggest piece of advice. But I'm far from knowing what I'm doing up there. I'm still learning. It's it's such a scary environment to you know really step out of your bubble and get uncomfortable, especially uh, you know if you're talking about something like climate like that. That's um, can be a tricky subject at times, but, but yeah, you know, I would say take your time and do what you can to, uh, you know, try, try, just try to make yourself feel comfortable. I like it. All right. I'm going to work on that. Yeah. That seems like you're doing great. You got to figure it out. I think conversation is an art and public speaking is an art. I think it's one of those arts you've never arrived, you know, probably like a lot of the things we do, snowboarding, totally. skiing, et cetera, which is maybe the good news, right? That's the beauty of it is the bar is constantly raising that you always know that that you have another level to reach in whatever aspect of life, you know, you're never, you're never at the finish line with all this, right? You're constantly looking for ways to improve upon your previous skill sets. And that's the beauty of the mountains is they're going to teach you lessons for the rest of your life. And, you know, I, I consider myself really young in this game and I still have a lot to learn and looking forward to doing that with, with a lot of my friends moving forward. Here, here. Hey man, appreciate the conversation a lot. It's cool to connect. It's cool to hear where you've been and where you're headed. Good luck with the best of it. And uh, I look forward to the next time. Yeah, likewise. Thank you for having me. And uh, definitely looking forward to chatting more in the future. Awesome. All right, man. You have a good evening. All right. Thank you. You too. Well, that's it for this edition of the Blister Podcast. But before we go, as I said at the top, I wanted to give you a little update from Cody. Because after this conversation with Nick... Of course, I wrote Cody and I said, Cody, I think you might be a bad person. Why wouldn't you read to Nick in the tent? And Cody wrote back and he said, you know, I actually feel really bad about that. But my headspace at the time, I was just entirely about minimal exertion. And in my opinion, that still doesn't seem like the greatest excuse Except if you've watched Summit Fever, I don't know. I think if we were ever going to be in a forgiving spirit, I think I too could imagine being in the headspace of just minimal exertion. So that said, though, maybe this is an opportunity where we do need to create a new ethic or add a new rule of ski mountaineering or just expeditions in general. If you are ever sharing a tent with somebody and you have access to reading material and they do not, the right thing to do in every instance is to read to them unless they do not want you to. So I would like to submit that as a kind of new hard and fast rule of ski mountaineering and expeditions. I don't know. That's just my take. Anyway, I want to say thanks to Nick for this conversation. Thanks to Taylor Ahern for producing this episode. And from all of us here in Gunnison and Crested Butte, Colorado, please take good care of yourself and everybody else. 
And we will be talking to you again later this week where this Wednesday we are going to be dropping our Blister Crash Course Telemark video. I think we might have two episodes of Gear 30 lined up this week. We've got Off the Couch and Bikes and Big Ideas going. So lots of good conversations in store for you this week. So yeah, some good stuff. All right, everybody, take good care. We'll be talking to you real soon.